attention sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. When President Trump kicks off his 2020 re-election campaign tomorrow night, he'll be doing it in downtown Orlando, holding a rally at the 20,000 capacity Amway Center. Changing the asylum laws is an imperative. Building the wall is an imperative. Putting more officers and agents on the ground, that is an imperative in getting judges and resources. Take a look at the Democrats, though. They're walking away from Obamacare and saying, well, that wasn't enough. Now they want to do Medicare for all, you know, which would eliminate 180 million Americans' private health insurance mm-hmm. that they like. And now, Stacey Washington. Oh, yeah. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for being with us today. We have even more fantastic show for you right now. We have Rita Dunaway. She's going to join us next segment. She is a constitutional attorney, author, and national legislative strategist for the COS Project. She has this new poll out saying that only 25% of Americans believe Congress will address major issues facing the nation, which we know they're stuck in gridlock. We know they're not going to do anything. Um, So she's going to join us to talk about that poll. And uh, we have a lot. I have a lot that carried over from last hour that I need to get to. Um, So first off, Let's get to this uh, breaking Supreme Court today uh, announced that they are not going to rule on another wedding cake lawsuit by the gay people, which, by the way, you might be thinking to yourself, you want to have, you know, a gay bake shop make you a pro-life cake or a, uh, you know, heterosexual marriage cake, whatever. Um, Feel feel free to go ask them to you'll you'll get denied. But double standards persist. So, you know, back in Oregon. In 2015, they fined Christian Baker, Sweet Cakes by Melissa, a whopping $135,000 for refusing to make a gay wedding cake for a lesbian couple. And today, instead of issuing a ruling, the Supreme Court vacated the lower court ruling and sent the case back to the lower courts in light of the Masterpiece Cake Shop ruling. Now, I can see why they would do this on the one hand, but they're basically saying is we need to give this lower court a chance to rule properly in light of the master, Masterpiece Cake Shop ruling. The only issue is they've already demonstrated that they have animus towards people who have sincerely held religious beliefs. So it doesn't matter if they send it back. Um, they're not going to. Now, hopefully the, the lower court will find differently. But my thought is they're going to be on the same kind of rampage that they've been executing towards uh, Mr. Phillips, where they've literally been just persecuting him. Every time he turns around, there's somebody new at his his door trying to get him to bake a cake that they know he's not going to bake. I mean, that's every single week almost for this man. And then they bring a lawsuit and then he's back in court. And of course he's got great representation, but that's not the point. Um, Okay. So then I also had, and we're going to get to, uh, did we listen to number two? Courage is the key to life itself. We did Um, from, the, the Yeah, we did. So we're going to be talking about um, Iran's unprovoked attacks, warranting a retaliatory military strike, um, and also the unreliable nature of solar and wind making electricity more expensive. And this is something that liberals have told us over and over again. If we just do solar and wind, that will make electricity cheaper for everyone. Well, it turns out that's just not true. So first, let's talk about these weapons of mass destruction. Um U.S. troops have found nearly 5,000 abandoned chemical weapons in Iraq between the years 2004 and 2011. 
Now remember that spans two presidencies. So you got some Bush years and you got some Obama years there. So I'm sorry, what, what is the reason why we haven't just told everybody about this? American troops finding nearly 5,000 abandoned chemical weapons in Iraq from 2004 and 2011. These findings were kept secret by the U.S. government. And this is reporting by the New York Times. According to the 10,000-word, eight-part interactive report called The Secret Casualties of Iraq's Abandoned Chemical Weapons, and it was authored by C.J. Chivers and published in the paper's website late on Tuesday, at least 17 American service members and seven Iraqi police officers were exposed to nerve or mustard agents after Ira- in Iraq after the year 2003. On at least six occasions, American troops and American-trained Iraqi troops were wounded by the abandoned munitions. But news of the encounters was neither shared publicly nor widely circulated among the troops. And the troops were ordered to be vague or deceptive about what was found. Jared Lampier, who's a retired Army major, said his discovery of the 2006, in 2006 of 2,400 nerve agent rockets at a former Republican Guard compound was the largest chemical weapons discovery of the war. And he was ordered to say he found nothing of significance. The paper also published heavily redacted intelligence documents obtained under the Freedom of Information Act. Now, what you might be wondering, why would they be secretive about this? Well, the discoveries of these chemical weapons did not support the government's invasion rationale. After the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, President Bush insisted that Saddam Hussein was hiding an active weapons cache uh, which was a mass destruction program and that he was doing so in defiance of international will and at the risk of basically every nation on the planet. UN inspectors said they couldn't find any evidence to support those claims by the Bush administration. So the discovery of pre-Gulf War chemical weapons, most of them filthy, rusty, or corroded, did not fit the narrative. They needed something to say that after September 11th, Saddam used chemical rounds And all of this was from the pre-1991 era. And so this is where I get, this is where I get really, I get ticked off because are you saying that even because they were rusty, they still couldn't hurt people? Because they certainly didn't not hurt American troops and Iraqi troops because they were old and from pre-1991. The fact is he still could have dropped those munitions on unsuspecting civilians or military from other countries. And even though the damage wouldn't have been as effective as it would have been were they brand new, it still would have harmed people. And the fact is he still had WMD. So because we're talking about semantics pre-1991 to post-1991, we had to keep it a secret and act as if the reason and rationale for waging the war was flawed when it was just, you know, we're talking details here. Are the weapons of mass destruction fresh new ones Or are they old ones that he could still use to some harm and detriment to others? He says, Jared L. Taylor, a former army sergeant, told the paper, I love it when I hear, oh, there weren't any chemical weapons in Iraq. There were plenty. Yeah, there were plenty. The troops began encountering the munitions in hidden caches and roadside bombs. The paper recounted a harrowing 2004 discovery in Baghdad by two explosives disposal technicians in detail. They'd actually been exposed to sarin gas because they basically picked up some munitions to take back for proper disposal. They didn't realize they contained sarin gas. They began to feel the effects immediately. They were sickened. 
And then they were put under a gag order not to talk about it. The security detail, the clinic that treated them and them, they were even briefed to tell their family members that they were exposed to industrial chemicals and they classified the case of them finding these, these sarin gas weapons as top secret. Also, as a result of the secrecy that was forced on these troops, military doctors were not prepared to treat the soldiers exposed to chemicals, preventing troops from receiving proper medical care and official recognition of their wounds because, you know, they could have gotten decoration and service medals and also acknowledgement of their exposure to sarin gas would put them in a class of uh, veterans benefits where their aftercare, their care post-service after they separated from the military would involve the U.S. government helping to continue to pay for them to, you know, basically be treated because this is a lifelong affliction that they're now dealing with. So I'm very disappointed. And I know I rail against the U.S. government. I rail against liberals. I talk about it. And I, I take none of it back. I apologize for nothing. This isn't that. If you're, if you're getting your ears perked up for that, sit down. That's not what I'm about to do here. But I am disappointed that U.S. service members who have written an oath, they've taken an oath to give their very bodies and their lives in service to this country, were told to lie about what they were exposed to because it didn't fit a narrative. The truth is, if they'd been allowed to speak honestly about what they experienced, then the American media would have had to deal with the fact that while they didn't have the fresh new weapons of mass destruction, they still had weapons of mass destruction. And many, many millions of dollars in false advertising by the Democrats about how Bush lied and people died wouldn't have been able to have been shared. Not only that, the lying. Let's get down to the core issue here. Forcing our troops to lie about what they saw. Classifying information that didn't need to be classified. And forcing these men to go without treatment that they deserved to serve a narrative. Disappointed, very disappointed in our U.S. government and the people who made these decisions. And once again, another case of those in a position of authority making decisions that they'll never be held accountable for. Well, maybe not here. Maybe they get away with this here. But we know that God is just and they will have to answer for the lies they forced others to tell and the things that they did surrounding this. These it's not one case. It's cases of American troops who were exposed to this. This it's just wrong. Absolutely unacceptable. And I feel really. Uh, it's disappointing. It's it's not that I think that U.S. military leadership is perfect or that they can't make mistakes. But this, to me, is a dereliction of duty. There should be people um, court-martialed. Rear Admiral John Kirby, who's a spokesman for Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel, declined to address specific incidents detailed in the Times investigation, but said that the military's healthcare system and awards practices are under review. I think people should be court-martialed. People should be stripped of their retirement benefits and their rank. And people should be held to account, meaning... No secrets, no getting to do it behind closed doors. How about if they're held accountable in public the way these troops have to suffer in public, but don't get to say why they have all of these symptoms and these long lasting debilitating diseases from being exposed to chemical weapons while they were justly discharging their service to this nation that they swore an oath to do. 
unbelievable. All right. So I want to hear from uh, Senator Cotton. He's talking about Iran's unprovoked attacks and what we could do in response. Of course, liberals' heads have literally popped off like Barbie dolls uh, under the tutelage of an angry toddler. And it's just hilarious to see them getting so upset when we've done this so many times before. It's number four. Well, Iran for 40 years has engaged in this kind of attacks uh, going back to the 1980s. In fact, Ronald Reagan had to reflag a lot of vessels going through the Persian Gulf and ultimately take military action against Iran in 1988. These unprovoked attacks on commercial shipping warrant a retaliatory military strike. We can make a military response in a time and in a manner of our choosing. But yes, unprovoked attacks on commercial shipping warrant a retaliatory military strike against the Islamic Republic of Iran. Going back to President Washington and all the way down to President Trump, the fastest way to get the fire and fury of the U.S. military unleashed on you is to interfere with the freedom of navigation on the open seas and in the air. That's exactly what Iran is doing in one of the world's most important strategic choke points. The president has the authorization to act to defend American interests. Certainly, he, uh, it would be in keeping with what President Obama did unwisely in Libya in 2011 in launching a weeks-long campaign to overthrow the government there. What I'm talking about is not like what we've seen in Iraq for the last 16 years or Afghanistan for the last 18 years, but retaliatory military strikes against Iran that make it clear we will not tolerate any kind of attacks on commercial shipping on the open seas. So what's so interesting about this is if it was Barack Obama, they would be they'd all be throwing up their little fake, you know, the little dance that they do where they make their hand go in a circle and then jerk to one side. You see it all over social media and everyone's doing it. It's like they're having epileptic seizures. Everybody would be doing that little dance with their hands and going Barack Obama. He's like he, he drops the mic. He drops bombs. He does this. He does that. He doesn't take any prisoners. He, no one pushes him around. Barack Obama, he's the drone king. He's a drone president. That's the way they used to talk about him. <laughs> so, so no matter that he was droning the garbage out of people in foreign countries, some of them American citizens, without giving them due process, they were just excited that it was a Democrat and he wasn't being a softy on war. You know, when he wasn't wearing high-waisted mom jeans and tossing a ball like a girl, he was droning people into oblivion. And they were just like, we'll take it. We'll take whatever we can get from this guy. But Tom Cotton comes out and says, you know, we might light him up and everybody on the left is losing their mind. They're interfering with commercial shipping operations. Of course we're going to light them up. I mean, are, are we already not lighting them up? Like, I can't believe we're talking about it. When we get back, we'll read it done away. Stay there. Like, I wanted to have the abortion because I was trying to hide a situation. When a young mom in crisis walks into a preborn pregnancy center, she's welcomed with open arms and given love, support, and a free ultrasound to meet her unborn baby. This young woman not only chose life for her baby, but heard the message of Jesus Christ and was comforted from the guilt and pain that plagued her. Preborn centers lead the nation in providing free ultrasounds. When an abortion-minded woman sees her baby on ultrasound, she's 80% more likely to choose life for her baby. For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds, and 100% of your sponsorship goes towards saving babies. To find out more, go to preborn.com. That's preborn.com or dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 and say baby. Your love can save a life. 
This is Viewpoints with Kirby Anderson. Earlier this month, various news outlets reported that a 17-year-old Dutch girl was put to death through euthanasia because she had been battling the trauma of childhood sexual abuse and subsequent rape. Days later, the same news outlets were focusing on the fact that they erroneously had reported that her death was due to legal euthanasia in the Netherlands. Actually, her death was a decision she made with her family to starve herself to death. The debate about the reporting overshadowed the more important question of why she chose to die. She had been sexually assaulted at age 11 and then was raped three years later. Because of that trauma, she suffered from PTSD, depression, and eating disorders. All of this was tragic from the original trauma right up to her decision to die. Because she lived in the Netherlands, reporters naturally assumed she ended her life due to the liberal euthanasia laws in that country. I recently spoke in Europe about the impact these laws have had in that country and how similar laws are now being found in the United States. Physician-assisted suicide is available now to one in five Americans. At the same time, we're also learning what many of us predicted would take place with the legalization of euthanasia. Oxford researchers found that in states where physician-assisted suicides were legal, there was an increase in total suicides. And more recent Dutch study came to a similar conclusion, finding that legalized euthanasia for psychiatric patients actually contributes to a rise in their numbers. I'm not surprised. If you legalize something, you get more of it. Make drugs legal, more people will try drugs. Make physician-assisted suicide legal, more people will try suicide. We know the history of the Netherlands and of the U.S. states that have legalized euthanasia. Legislators and policymakers need to pay attention. I'm Kirby Anderson, and that's my point of view. For a free copy of Kirby's booklet, A Biblical View on Antisemitism, go to viewpoints.info slash antisemitism. Viewpoints.info slash antisemitism. This is Stacy on the Right with Stacy Washington on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Hello, friends. I'm back, and I'm so excited to have our next guest on the program, Rita Dunaway, constitutional attorney, author, national legislative strategist for the Convention of States Project. Rita, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be with you. Yeah, so you've got this new poll out saying that only 25% of Americans believe Congress will address major issues facing the nation. I can't believe that a quarter of Americans even believe that. We kind of know they're not going to be doing anything, don't we? Yes, we do. And, you know, it's so interesting that in a day and age when we are so divided politically and, you know, we talk a lot about how polarized we are as a nation, this is one thing that people agree about, is that Congress is not going to fix the biggest issues, the biggest problems we have with our government. But, you know, I have to point out what I find so interesting is that um, in polling done across America in a number of states, 66% of Americans agree that we should have a convention of states in order to resolve some of these issues that Congress is not going to fix. So there again is something that no matter which party you identify with, no matter where you are in the political spectrum, there are a few things that we agree on, and they're pretty important things. Okay, so one of the things that I find interesting about the Convention of States movement, and I believe I've interviewed Mark on uh, another radio station when I was guest hosting or something like that, um, uh-huh. 
and so we we've had a couple of discussions about this and one of the chief uh, kind of dissenters to this idea, someone who really honestly was very, very well respected and had a wealth of information on this topic was Phyllis Schlafly. And she was completely opposed to the idea of a convention of states. So what is what is the response to the concerns that she had about how it would be a runaway type of affair and that once started, the liberals would, you know, hijack the the entire convention of states and really push through a bunch of things that we're currently fighting in the courts right now? Yeah, well, I have to say, first of all, I have the greatest respect for Phyllis Glassley. Um, She was an amazing patriot and, and did so much good for our country. But Sadly, on this issue, um, it seems to me what happened was Mrs. Blackley relied on just some bad information that was actually really common around the time that she was looking into the issue. And essentially what happened was, you know, it was around the time after the Supreme Court handed down the Roe versus Wade decision that some of the states started to look into this Article 5 convention process as a way to reverse the Roe versus Wade precedent. And so that was the time that it really piqued interest among the states. So not surprisingly, a lot of the liberal scholarship that was done at that point was used to really dissuade conservatives from using the process. And, in fact, um, one of the letters that Mrs. Glassley frequently cited in her opposition was by a liberal Supreme Court justice who was part of the majority in that Roe versus Wade decision. And so, of course, he would dissuade her from using it and paint this picture of, you know, the runaway convention and all of that. But the good news is there has been great scholarship done on this topic within the this past decade or so. Um, The most recent is a book by Professor Rob Nadelson, The Law of Article 5. And the truth is, in American history, there has never been a runaway convention. We actually have a very rich history of the state meeting in convention process to work out different issues. And there has never been a convention where the state delegations exceeded their authority and did something they weren't authorized to do. Well, and so that that's that's a valid observation, speaking of what's happened in the past. But I think you would agree, Rita, that the current lay of the land is that anything that liberal states or groups of liberals want to get accomplished when they can't get it done at the legislative ballot box by electing people to pass it into legislation at the state level or at Congress they simply resort to the courts, which they've activated through years of appointing liberal activist judges to positions all over the country. And they have certain courts that they like to go to repeatedly to get the rulings that they like. And these these rulings have resulted in, I mean, really dastardly decisions that have been made that are currently harming us in this moment. And so Roe v. Wade being one of them, obviously, I, I, my primary issue, the primary voting issue for me is the pro-life one. But there are other issues that cascade from there. And all of these, you can trace them back to an activist judge who had a liberal agenda that they were accomplishing. And so I don't see how a, a constitutional convention in an environment like that where we could expect liberal states to abide by whatever the parameters are for uh, Article 5. And 
uh, you spoke of a liberal Supreme Court justice. The, all, what I'm looking at here in front of me is a, a comment from Justice Antonin Scalia, hardly a liberal, um, he, condemning the proposals for an Article 5 convention as a horrible idea just months before he unexpectedly passed away. So he was actually with uh, Phyllis Schlafly in opposing this idea. Well, let me make a distinction, and this is actually a really common misconception, so I'm glad that you brought it up and I have a chance to speak to it. We, The Convention of States Project is not advocating for a constitutional convention. We are absolutely on the same page with Justice Scalia. We would not want to see our great constitution rewritten at this point in time. And it doesn't need to be rewritten. What we are advocating for is an Article 5 convention to propose amendments to the Constitution. And the reason we're advocating for that is precisely what you just pointed out. You know, right now, anyone can look and see. Congress is sending our nation into a fiscal crisis. The most significant laws of our day and age are made by courts who have no legitimate authority to make law or set public policy. And then we've got laws and and effective statutes and regulations being written by unelected bureaucrats. And so the only way that we can correct that situation is through this Article 5 convention process. That's the only way we're going to see those bad, overreaching court precedents ever reverse. That's the only way we're going to see a return to a proper historical interpretation of parts of the Constitution that have been so abused, like the General Welfare Clause, the Commerce Clause, the Necessary and Proper Clause. It's going to take constitutional amendments to set things straight, and it's going to take the state joining together to do it, because Congress will never do it on its own. So, Rita, you mentioned the difference between a constitutional convention and an Article 5 convention. What is the difference? Well, the con- we, there's only been one constitutional convention, and that was the one in Philadelphia in 1787 that wrote the Constitution that we have today. And despite a common misconception, the delegation to the constitutional convention were empowered by their states to do that. Um, The states knew that there were serious problems and shortcomings with the Articles of Confederation, so the states sent their delegates there to work out a better plan for governing the Union. So that's the Constitutional Convention. An Article 5 convention is a convention that's called specifically pursuant to the terms and prescriptions in Article 5 of the Constitution, and it can only propose amendments to the Constitution we already have. So the Article 5 Convention process just gives the state the same power that Congress has every day it sits in session to propose amendments for the state to consider. Okay, so we're talking about Article 5 of the Constitution. And so, again, the concern that I've seen so many different places is that this would then enable liberals to 
offer up an amendment to the Constitution uh, or and, and they would be able to offer up um, the elimination of the southern border, for instance, which is an obsession of theirs or enshrining, mm-hmm. um, you know, enshrining abortion and further enshrining it into the Constitution by making it impossible mm-hmm. for states to limit abortion. So how does that not happen under the scenario that you're describing with an Article 5 convention? Great question. There are a number of protections and limitations on the Article 5 convention process. The first one is that in order to trigger this whole Article 5 convention, the state legislatures have to agree on what is essentially the agenda for the convention. And so what they do is the state legislatures, two-thirds of them, which is 34 states, today, have to pass a resolution applying for a convention to consider and propose amendments on a certain topic. So the delegates that go to the convention are limited to the topic that the states agreed needed to be discussed. So to give you a concrete example of that, the effort that I'm a part of, the Convention of States Project, the resolution that we are trying to get passed, which has already been passed in 15 states as of today, calls for a convention to propose amendments that do three things. Impose fiscal restraints on Washington, limit the power and jurisdiction of the federal government, and set term limits on federal officials. So that right away defines the outer boundaries of what can even be discussed at the convention. Then the second protection is that the delegates who go, or commissioners rather, who go to represent the state legislatures at the convention, they act as legal agents of the state legislatures. They're not just going out on their own to make their own decisions at the convention about what amendment proposals would be useful. They are bound to abide by the will of their state legislature, which typically gets expressed in formal written instructions that the state legislatures give. And then finally, and this really is the biggest protection on the process, according to the terms of Article 5 itself, any amendments that are proposed by this convention have to then go back to the states and be ratified by 38 states. That's three-fourths of the states. So that is a huge hurdle, and it really guarantees that only amendment proposals that are supported by the vast majority of the American people will ever become part of our Constitution. Okay, so uh, thank you for that explanation. But after hearing the high threshold for passage of any of these proposed amendments, and the three that you uh, three that you outlined are fantastic. Those ideas are great. I agree with them. It sounds like Tea Party, you know, uh, 202, not mm-hmm. 101, but 202. But there's no way that <laughs> Illinois, California, New York, Oregon, Washington State, and so many others, like we don't have three-fourths of the states willing to pass or accept constitutional amendments like the ones you've described. We have a lot of liberal states that not only don't want to see government limited, they want to see the government completely take over because their states are poorly run and they're already suffering from, you know, malaise from them enacting socialism and higher taxes, et cetera. They're suffering from population loss. There's no way they would agree to that. So what is the point of spending all the time to get 
a constitutional or Article 5 convention going when in the end we can't get three-fourths of the states to ratify the three proposals that you've brought forward? Well, this is really, I think, where the polling comes in and is so relevant because if there's one thing that the vast majority of the American people, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, can agree on, it's that Washington is broken and things are not working well there. So while you may be a liberal and may disagree with the majority of the red states on specifically what the public policy should be that governs you, you may still be able to agree that you would rather have the bulk of public policy that governs you be coming from your state government rather than handed down from on high in Washington. So if you're living in Illinois, you may not agree with the public policy that, say, um, Texans or Oklahomans would like to see passed. But you may very well, especially in the age of the Trump administration, you may very well be able to agree that you would rather have your Illinois state legislature deciding the bulk of the public policies that actually touch upon your daily life. So that's really the beautiful thing, I think, about this whole process, is that it's not about liberal or conservative policy. It's about self-governance. The best governing decisions are the ones made closest to home. And that was a right that our founding fathers believed in and provided for us to have in our Constitution. And so what we're trying to do is to really get back to that and put the federal government back in its limited constitutional box. Hmm. So I, it sounds, sounds fantastic, um, but I think... If it's one thing that I've learned in since the Obama years, since the beginning of his administration and now afterwards, it's that any process that has rules and parameters or, you know, uh, any kind of strictures around it, anything that has a process, that there's a way to subvert that process and that if anyone will find it, it's liberals. And I think while I agree with it in principle that it would be wonderful to have this process and have Americans engaged in this way. I don't see anything starting, beginning, and ending that would yield these kind of results that liberals couldn't find a way to completely upend to get what they want out of it. Um, but I do, I do hope that we can have more conversations around it and learn more about it. Rita Dunaway, constitutional attorney, author, national legislative strategist for the Convention of States Project. Thank you for your time today and your expertise. Thank you so much. All right. Talk to you again soon. Have a great week. All right, you guys. You can call in. We'll be back with more after this. Back to Genesis with Dr. John Morris, scientist and president of the Institute for Creation Research. Dr. Morris, is it true that the Archaeopteryx was the transition between reptiles and birds? Chris, it's very popular to say these days that dinosaurs evolved into birds, but this doesn't square with the evidence. Evolutionists claim the ancestor of the birds is Archaeopteryx, a fossil with some features of dinosaurs and some of birds. Now, even though I would question their claim about Archaeopteryx, it's still dated at 30 million years older than the dinosaur. Obviously, the dinosaurs were not its ancestor. Even most evolutionists have given up on Archaeopteryx. It looks like they were separate right from the start. Of course, that's what the Bible says. Back in Genesis, we read that birds were created on day five of creation week and land animals like dinosaurs on day six. 
Evolution has it backwards. To learn more about creation, get our free DVD called That's a Fact. Call us at 800-628-7640 and mention the promo code FACT. This is Kay Arthur. Are you hungry for love? Unconditional love because unconditional is what you need. You've blown it, made a mess of life, and deep inside you wonder if anyone could love you the way you are. God does. And that's why God let His only Son, Jesus Christ, die on a cross almost 2,000 years ago. Jesus died for you because God knew you would fail to measure up. That's how much God loves you. The Bible, God's book, says while you were a sinner, a person who failed and missed God's standard, Jesus died for you. But that's not all. God raised Jesus from the dead. Because Jesus lives forever, you can too. If you want unconditional love, dear one, and a new start on life, call 888-NEED-HIM. Let me repeat that. If you would like to speak to someone right now about beginning a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, call 888-NEED-HIM. This is Poll Paris with Fox News Director of Polling, Dana Blanton. Enthusiasm is up and fear is down. I'm talking about how people would react if Donald Trump wins in 2020 compared to 2016. Our new Fox News poll finds the number of voters saying they would be enthusiastic if Trump wins is up eight points. Now, most of that bump comes from Republicans. Their enthusiasm is up 18 points. Overall, 36% would be enthusiastic or pleased if President Trump is reelected. On the other hand, half, 50%, would be either displeased or scared. The number saying scared is down 16 points. On voting, a majority says they'll place greater importance on supporting a candidate who shares their views on issues than one who is highly ethical. Check out this partisan gap. Republicans strongly prefer, by a 42-point margin, a candidate who shares their views over one who is highly ethical. Democrats put ethics over issues by six. I'm Dana Blanton, and that's your Poll Parade. You can watch a live stream of the show on Facebook or YouTube at Stacy on the Right. Now, back to the show on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. He was in Moscow in November 2013. He met with a, a journalist and, and... Well, she's poor journalist. But anyway, uh, she became famous because of uh, Putin is her godfather. Okay, Putin's godfather. Okay. She also known as a person who provides uh, uh, girls for escort for oligarchs, and she met with Trump, and she brought him one-hour Russian girl celebrity Olga Buzova, who also known as a person with a strange reputation. Olga, and and how do you spell her name? Olga Buzova. And what's the nature of the compromise? Well, there were pictures of naked Trump, mm-hmm. and so Putin was made aware. Uh, of the the availability of the compromising material? Yes, of course. Uh, Thank you very much. We will be back in touch uh, with you through our staff uh, to make uh, arrangements uh, to obtain these materials for our committee and and for the FBI, and and I appreciate your reaching out to us. So, this is literally (laughs) Adam Schiff, a recording of him, some dude's name Krasenstein, were pranking him, offering him fake information. It was he thought it was real though. So he they 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 basically they pranked him, they punked him. They told him that they had compromising information on then candidate Donald Trump and that they would the, compromat, which is the Russian word for compromising information. They said they had it. 
They would give it to him. He said he would take it and review it with the Democrats and then possibly forward it on to the FBI. And he wanted to know what it was. So if the Democrats are so against taking information from foreign governments or foreigners, bad information or compromising information about Americans, then what was Adam Schiff doing? What was he doing? Oh, that's right. Because when Hillary Clinton is getting money from foreign governments to speak, it's fine. When she's selling 20% of our uranium, it's fine. Uh, When her husband is getting paid to speak, it's fine. When we have President Obama winging his way over to Italy because of compromising information that's come out uh, about Italian government linked up with ours doing bad stuff, fine. When John Kerry said, he basically shadowed the president and went all over the world, he and Obama went and spoke to world leaders after President Trump had been with them, undoing everything President Trump had been doing. And not a Democrat, not one Democrat said anything about it. They were fine with it. Because if the damaging information is coming from Russia and it's about Donald Trump, well, that's a dossier. That's something you can use to get FISA warrants so you can spy on Donald Trump. But if it's information about Hillary Clinton, well, anybody who would receive that information without first calling the FBI, that's treason. That's so, you know, do you see what do you see what's happening here? I, w- I want to be perfectly clear that we all know opposition research happens. That's how the dossier was created. It's an opposition research document. I told you I've worked on a campaign before. We had a big, thick three and a half inch binder from the day the guy graduated from high school and every bit of information that could be found from anywhere. And it was all judged. It was all like categorized from um uh, very reliable. And then if it was reliable at the end of that section, it would have all of the links where you could find like if you could go online and find it or if it was a New York Times story or, you know, if there was someone who had given the information, their name and information, you know, so you could contact them and ask them again. Or it would have information in there and it would say not reportable, um, not to be used in talking points on background only, meaning this is something someone told us. We don't have anything to bolster it. We don't have any collab- collaboration, corroboration. We, we, can't, we can't prove this is true. We have a reliable source that we like, but we don't have any other supporting information. And, and what you'd have to do is you'd have to say, okay, so this informs the candidate about their oppos- opposing, can- uh, you know, their, their opponent, but it's not something you'd bring up in a debate. So if we know that that happens, because it's not like I went on that campaign and that was the first opposition research book ever known to man. These have been around since there have been campaigns. The point is that Democrats feel that opposition research is warranted when it's on Republicans and when it's on Democrats, it's treason and it's a reason for them to spy on you. That's that's what it boils down to. Like, I wish I could. I wish that wasn't the case. I wish it was a genuine desire for them to see bad information coming from foreign governments go through the FBI, but that's not it at all. They don't care anything about keeping information that's about Donald Trump uh, out of the main public eye. Look what they did with BuzzFeed. NBC bought BuzzFeed, and then shortly after they bought it, BuzzFeed issues the dossier because they they could use BuzzFeed because BuzzFeed didn't have a good reputation. It was a place where you go to find cat videos and cat memes. And occasionally, you know, a a political article that might be something that could seed the ground to get picked up by some larger news outlet. They just wanted to get the dossier out into the atmosphere so they could validate it. Once that was done, 
then they could say, okay, now we can take items from the dossier and compile them into a document that would still be sourced from the, doc- the, the dossier. The dossier is the source document, but this new document has the weight of having, you know, it was published at, this information was also published at BuzzFeed. So now it's been sourced twice. See how they created their own secondary sourcing? And then they took that to the FISA court. Now you would think that the FISA court would look at that and say, so you have a dossier and then you have a BuzzFeed article. And then you have this thing that y'all wrote. Basically, you wrote Cribs notes of those two items and that gets you a FISA warrant. It seems like some judge at that level would have been like, no. And don't come back to me with this. This is spying on an American. But no, the judge was like, yeah, you know, you scratch my back. I'll scratch yours. Do it. Do it. I mean, what, what harm could come from it? Just just do a little listening. It can't hurt. If, if, if he hasn't done anything wrong, he shouldn't mind. You ever heard that before? Wasting what, what, 40 million taxpayer dollars and all this time. And we're sitting up here. We're still talking about it. And we all know the dossier is nothing. It's a garbage document. Take all the worst gossip people said about you in high school or college or your last job, wherever, and get somebody to write it out and put it in a binder and, you know, save it as a PDF and email it around the country a couple times, then get some obscure blog to pick it up And then you have what we just saw as the validation for surveilling the president of the United States when he was a candidate. I mean, you just can't make this stuff up. All right. So um, I don't know if you guys saw that. um, (laughs) So Joe Biden, he had made one of his little one of his little events. He said, um, this is not a Trump va- this is not a Trump rally. And <laughs> so people are cracking wise about it and talking about how you you know it's not a Trump rally because there aren't a hundred thousand people waiting to attend. And not you know, sometimes when you hear that, you think to yourself, you know how sometimes when you're talking about crowds or groups of people doing something, you'll say, like, oh, you know, it was like a hundred thousand people. Like I heard tell that they they're guesstimating that there were five hundred thousand people down at Keener Plaza last weekend celebrating the blues win and the aerial photos seem to support it. And that's based on other parades we've seen downtown for different events. Like when the Cardinals won the world series, about a half a million people dressed in red flooded downtown. And so, you know, you can compare the shots of those two events and you know, you know, basically this many people on these streets, filling it up from side to side, front to back. That's about this many hundreds of thousands of people. But when you say there's not 100,000 people waiting to attend, you think to yourself, oh, you know, give or take 25,000. It could really just be 75,000. It's 100,000 people waiting. They're ready to get down in Orlando. And here in St. Louis, we had two huge parties on Friday evening for the Trump launch. It was basically happy birthday, Donald Trump, and then Trump launch parties. Now, I didn't go to either one of them because it was Friday evening. And I'm just going to tell y'all, I'm just going to be this. Can we just get real for a second? Sometimes we get real. And I tell y'all things that, I hadn't really planned on sharing, but let me just tell y'all, I've been working out and the person who's been putting me through my paces, you're probably thinking I'm going to say a personal trainer. No, it's our oldest daughter. She runs track in college. And so she has these summer workouts that she has to do. And I've been going to the gym with her. And let me just say, there's a difference between her little 19 year old self and myself. (laughs) 
Okay. <laughs> it has been unbelievable. So Friday evening, I knew I had a workout to do on Saturday and had done one on Friday. And I was like, I'm, I'm in. I did not go out. In fact, Friday night, yeah, I knew that there was a party and I'd been invited to both of them. There were two parties. I'd been invited and I didn't even, I did not leave this house, y'all. I didn't leave this house because you know how it is when you first start working out? You get past the first initial stage where your body is literally screaming at you, what are you doing? Stop. And that's every part of your body. Even your fingers are sore. Like last weekend, even my hands and my fingers were sore from holding the little, you know how you hold the bar and you do the squats and you, you lift the bar up over your head. All the, all the names of these exercises I used to know when I was in my 20s. Now my daughter knows them. And she says, okay, now we're doing whatever these things are. And then I do them and I'm literally, sweat's pouring off and I'm just thinking to myself, please don't let me die. Yeah, that's what's happening. So Friday evening, I did not only not only not make it to any parties, I was just so grateful that I could feel like I could feel my hands and my ankles and, and I was in a mildly not painful situation. So I didn't go, but they were well attended and apparently people really had a good time. And I'm only like just a little teeny, like maybe 4% of me wishes that I'd been there. And the rest of me is just glad I was at home and I wasn't in pain. So these ideas, like they, they have this big blow up blimp. Um, it's called baby Donald John Trump. And it's a balloon that they like to blow up and they, they flew it in London when he was there for his state visit with the queen and the prime minister there in Great Britain. And it will be in attendance. Like they love blowing it up and and putting it out there. But you know what the problem is? The baby Donald John Trump, um, the balloon, the baby Trump balloon, it's kind of cute. It's actually like maybe some, maybe some Trump supporters should get one because apparently you can buy it and stretch a t-shirt over it because it's, it's sizable, but it's nothing is impossible. This is America. You want a big, huge blimp sized t-shirt with make America great again on it. All you got to do is put that on the internet and somebody will give you a quote. You will have a t-shirt in your little hot hands within 72 hours. I think they should blow it up and put a make America great again t-shirt on it. And intentionally fly it as the new one of the new fun things that you can see and get your picture taken with at Trump rallies. A hundred thousand people plus baby Trump blimps and T-shirts. I see it. I see it happening. Somebody out there who's listening to this show who is an entrepreneur, you're welcome for that great idea. You're welcome. Get that T-shirt together and also the baby the baby blimp, the baby Trump blimp. Um, so they've been getting really like they get so excited because they think that when they're flying that blimp, it's like hurting Donald Trump. Well, which of the 4,868 candidates on the Democratic side have ever had a baby blimp of themselves created and sold online and flown all over the world in London, you know, other countries and in the United States? Please, I'll just wait for anybody who knows who's who. Oh, I'm sorry. No, none of them are that famous. (laughs) None of them are over the target. None of them are hated well enough to have their own baby blimp. Yeah, I the the idea here is to mock him and make him look bad. But the fact is, there's just not um, nobody else is getting this kind of treatment. Like nobody hated Hillary Clinton enough. And, and we there, there was a lot of hate. There was a lot of hatred for her. No one hated her enough to make her into a balloon, a cute balloon with just a diaper on and a cell phone. 
and a snarly looking face and blonde hair. Like this is, this is, this is America right here. So I think, yeah, Joe Biden's right when he says there weren't a hundred thousand people there. Good for him. Um, good for him for noticing that. <laughs> good for him for noticing that he'll never have a hundred thousand people for him rallying anywhere. Um, and also good for him for having the dubious honor of following behind Hillary Clinton as a candidate that the media doesn't have enough confidence in for him to have his own poll numbers come out. They got to make stuff up for him. Isn't that embarrassing for him? Well, I mean, it would be embarrassing for him if he knew how to be embarrassed about anything. But this is a man who sniffs the hair of other people's wives in public while cameras are rolling and also massages the shoulders of young girls and tells them they're pretty. So maybe he doesn't have the ability to be embarrassed. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so um, um, before we go, I have a couple of things to say for the for the liberals and the haters. First of all, happy Monday to you. Donald Trump is still your president. And God is still king of all, Lord of all, and on the throne. And we Christians are still geeked out about it. How about that? Um, and then, of course, there's uh, news out of Jerusalem. They're naming a freshly new-built part of the Golan Heights after President Donald John Trump. It's going to be called Ramat Trump, Trump Heights. I hear your heads popping off. I'm sorry, guys. Oh, but I'm not sorry. You can tell I'm enjoying that just a little bit too much. Yes. Um, so that's the show for today. Y'all enjoy. Have a fantastic evening. God bless. Be back with you tomorrow. <laughs>